Hi, welcome to Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do, the podcast about parenting in the climate crisis. Today we're joined by Elizabeth Wathuti. Elizabeth has spent much of her early 20s addressing world leaders about the climate crisis and the impact on communities like hers in Kenya. Today she talks to Babs and I about the frustrations of young climate activists trying to humanise climate catastrophes to adults who often seem like they're just not listening. You know, you really hit the headlines, I suppose, if that's one way of describing it, at COP26 in Glasgow. And your words were incredibly powerful and they really hit home to Katie and I. But there was something that you said in, in the speech that you gave, which, which spoke about soul searching. And you said, I've done a lot of soul searching about what to say here today. And I've asked myself over and over what words might move you. And then I realized that making my four minutes count does not rest solely on me. That was incredibly powerful. How do you think that was received from everybody that was listening to you that day? I think at that moment, people were actually listening and I have never had a difficult time before in my life trying to get the right words to speak to leaders. It was my first time to directly speak to world leaders. And I mean directly, but also because I know that so many people have done that before. So many people have been on similar platforms trying to urge world leaders to take action. But still from where I stand and from where I come from, I still see that enough is not being done because people are still you know, facing the worst impacts of the crisis. And they're still, we're in a sort of a pattern where we go to summits and leaders make pledges, but they don't meet them. And it's still something that occurs every now and then. And I think that's why I felt that I was in a very difficult position to be able to get the words right and understand what exactly is the problem, why is the gap. And to me, I thought there's a huge disconnect between what the leaders say in the inside and what the people outside demand. And so how to bridge that gap it was all about how do we address this human problem with human solutions? It's about our hearts, it's about the minds and how we bring all these things together and you know, feed into what stances you must do. Because with that disconnect, then we're not able to move faster. And I think that's why it was really important to me to directly appeal to the leaders to open their hearts because if the hearts were open, we wouldn't be making pledges that we're not serious about. We'll be talking about what's important and what's possible. And that's the missing piece in this summit. I think that's why it was so kind of important what you were saying. And I think that's what we're trying to explore on this podcast is I think adults and parents, um, world leaders, kind of shutting down emotionally yes there's all of the talk and so I you know your speech was so powerful about opening your hearts and I guess what we've noticed is so much easier for young people to kind of really open their hearts see what's happening understand the gravity of it and kind of move and I don't know what happens to adults and parents like Babs and I when it's so huge there's something in us that kind of shuts down because maybe it's just too difficult to look at or too scary so it feels like then that responsibility has been placed on young people's shoulders like you so it just feels like this really odd dynamic where people like you are kind of saying to adults 
open your hearts because the only way that we can move forward in action is is that emotional response isn't it first that's a kind of precursor to action but like it feels really how does it feel to you that that seems to be the the um the role of young people in this I feel it's a huge burden that has been left to the group that's not responsible for the crisis and also the fact that the young people have chosen not to just be victims, but they're stepping up and taking up the challenge, which should have been taken up by leaders, you know, by the parents as well, because this is about, you know, historical emissions. This is about what caused this crisis. And most of these young people have been born into the crisis, into a mess they did not create themselves. But then looking at what would happen if nothing is done, looking at the fact that Stan says that this would only be catastrophic, the young people are stepping up and saying, that's not the kind of future we want. So we will make change happen if nobody else can make that change happen. But again, this is a huge burden that is being carried by the group that's not supposed to carry it. But again, it's an example of what leadership looks like. And that's the leadership piece that we are missing from the leaders seeing a challenge and not sitting back, but seeing a challenge and choosing to do something about it. But then the leaders see the challenge, they see the problem, they know who's responsible for the crisis, but still that's not the kind of leadership because we're still trying to sort of dig the hole instead of getting out of the hole and mm -hmm. trying to fix this problem. And for me, leadership is when you see that problem and choose to do something about it. But what we get back is pledges, is commitments that are not being made. And we see, we see a lot of betrayal because this is not just about us. It's also about generations to come and every decision that is being made right now. Most of these people are not going to be there to live the consequences. It's the children of today, it's the young people, it's the future generations. And so for me, I see it as betrayal and also I see the power of youth in action because they're not choosing to be victims, but they've stepped up and are making that change happen. You talk about betrayal and you said about the burden that leaders, and you also said, and parents have put on this generation. I'm just wondering if you blame your own parents for the situation that you and your generation find yourselves in at the moment. I would say right now, there's a lot of uh, intergenerational dialogues happening and cooperation. There's, for instance, Parents for Future, so many groups of parents who are not, who have chosen to not be in that group of those that did not do anything, those who have chosen to be in the right side of history. And I think that's like my direct appeal that we join the young people, we join the children in trying to make that change happen. Because while the leaders and uh, a larger group of people are not taking action, there are those that have chosen, I've seen the problem and I've chosen to take up leadership and do something about it. So that's the generation, you know, there's, for instance, every time, um, I mean, I love- But what about, what about your own parents though? So my own parents are really, number one, very supportive of my work. And yep. they always like support in terms of what messaging I'm taking out there and they see the urgency and they know why I'm making this fight and why it's really important to get the support that I need. And I think that is what every parent should do to make sure there's that support stream because we need our momentum to be maintained. Many times people ask me about my mental health, how I take care of myself, how I make sure that I'm recharging. Getting this kind of support from my own mother, getting this kind of support even with my own environmental projects back at home, 
from my own mom it shows me that she's concerned she cares about what i'm fighting for and mm. she's ready to do everything in, within her capacity to support and i think to me that should be what every person does and whether or not their parents because this is about the next generation it's about this generation it's about everyone what advice do you think you can give other young people whose parents might not be as supportive to them and how you kind of get them on board because I think you're lucky that your parents got what you were into and got what you wanted to fight for I would actually say to a bigger extent I got my mother on board <laughs> yeah which I think is okay really well tell good. us how you did that then <laughs> Yes, which I think is great. I have always been passionate about nature, about the environment, about the trees around me, the, the, the clean waters, because I come from the most forested region in Kenya. But also as a child, for me, this was about being able to experience the beauty of nature and how that made me feel happy and just that peace being in such a beautiful place, but also how I began to also get angry and frustrated when I began to see people cutting down the trees, the water is being polluted. And I thought to myself that I have to do something. And so that's when I really held on to the fact that I need to be an activist. I need to be an environmentalist as well. And one of the main steps I took up was to actually choose to take a course in environmental studies and community development. But before then I had not understood the scale of the problem that it's also about what other countries beyond my own country are doing to cause the crisis. So it's beyond my community, it's beyond my country's borders, it's about the world. And that's why the global activism came in. And for me, just telling my mom that this is what I want to study. I want to learn more about what I can contribute to be able to address this crisis, what I can do about deforestation. And I just had to get her on board to allow me, to support me to do the course that I wanted to take. And also when I got to the university, I also got her to support me to start my own organization in first year that would support children to plant trees in their schools and also to get them to understand and love nature. And I also started a tree nursery back at home, somehow got her to help me because not many times I'm at home, but I would need support. I would need someone to help me see if the siblings are doing well. And I think for me- just Do your washing, do your washing, do the cooking, <laughs> making sure you're fed. <laughs> exactly. But it's and not generational. It. Yeah, yeah, sorry, Elizabeth. And I say she loves it because like today, uh, anytime I'm like going on stage to speak, the person I talk to like two minutes before I speak, my mom is calling. Are you ready? How are you feeling? Oh, that's lovely. And I, oh, that's it's so really nice. Great. She, she's been very supportive. And just the fact that uh, I think that would be one of my advice to the young people. We can make this change happen. We can be the ones that steer this. We can be the ones that get our parents to change. And a good, another good example is the kids that I work with, uh, planting trees with them and educating them. They have also, in one or another, made their parents get into the climate and environment space. They ask them not to litter. They ask them not to do certain things around. And they come to us and say, yeah, because my child sort of told me to do this. They find that if my child is doing it, then, I mean, I am older and... I should be supporting these and I should actually make some changes in my lifestyle as well. It's those little steps that tell us that the young people, the children can change everything. I really worry about the kind of, and you were saying the word burden, you know, that burden that, that puts, that's put on young people to educate their parents, to be talking on a global stage, to be saying, please open your hearts. Like that's a huge, when the stakes are so high, 
you know, that's a really, really huge burden. And, you know, as you've been then saying, obviously the parents that you're now talking about, it's great that they are getting on board, but that sense of betrayal, I think for so many other children around the world who, who feel that sense of betrayal, I don't know what, what to do with that or what to, as a parent, how to kind of help that. Cause that's a really, I mean, that's a really significant thing. If you've got lots yeah. of young people around the world feeling betrayed by adults, what do you do with that? I would say the world has not acknowledged that we are rightfully impatient. And that's the big difference with this generation and like uh, the, the previous generations, because this is about how we see the scale of the problem. We see the urgency and we know that we will have to live longer with the consequences. We know that the decisions that are being made today without us are going to impact us directly and we're going to have to live longer with them. And it's about how we view the young people as well. It's about the fact that we try to speak up, but we still don't feel heard. We try to get our voices out there because we know what's at stake. We see the urgency, but again, most of the people that we speak to, let's say the leaders, for instance, they're comfortable, they're okay, they're at peace. But we are rightfully impatient because this is about our future. This is about what's going to go more wrong. It's already happening. I have spent my past few weeks with communities in Northeastern Kenya, in Wajia County, who have been impacted by the climate crisis. Every day I'm speaking, I can't help but think and even see what I saw there, seeing this community that has over 80% of their livelihood coming from livestock. I would see hundreds of livestock lying dead. At some instance, I have goats on my hands that were dying with communities. They're asking for help. They're not even aware of the big scale of the fact that, you know, our, our suicidal economic models, our deadly reliance on fossil fuels, they don't know all these things, but this is why they're suffering. And they're only left to hold on to their faith that there's going to be something better coming tomorrow but these are people that are losing a hope for their future. I think feeling that, seeing that, and having that in our hearts and in our minds is the missing piece. And that's why every time I speak, I say young people are rightfully, you know, they're rightfully uh, impatient. They should be impatient. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to be frustrated because this is a betrayal. But there's a lesson to pick that we're not just angry. We're not just feeling frustrated. We have moved a step further from everyone else. We have chosen to do something about, we've chosen to turn our reactions into action to do something. And I think and that, if everybody else did that, that's the missing piece. Yeah, how, I think you're right. Talking. And I think, um, I think you can sit in a place of anger and frustration, but turning that into action is where the real change is gonna come about. And I think, you know, I've seen it you hear about it but yeah I've seen it that that's what the the younger movement are doing incredibly well you you know you spoke about opening the hearts and minds of people to fill that gap but I, I'm just wondering you know in the months that have passed since you made that very powerful speech and to where we are today have you seen any hearts being opened and the leaders that you're wanting to motivate to change things has there been any kind of concrete change I would say 
the humanitarian crisis I actually described at Copeland Six, I see that it has actually only worsened. I remember talking about 2 million Kenyans facing climate-related starvation. It's now over 3 million Kenyans and over 20 million people in neighboring countries across the Horn of Africa. So the number is growing larger. People are facing more losses. People are suffering. People are being impacted by the crisis much more six months later. But we're not seeing concrete steps being taken. We're not seeing clear and concrete steps. And for most of the pledges and commitments that are put forward, there are no pathways on how we are going to get there. But that and must be heartbreaking. That must be exactly. heartbreaking when you are pouring your heart out incredibly vulnerably on the world stage and then more people are dying, more people are victims of what's happening. And yet nothing, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you say that nothing is being done or what is being done is not enough? I would still say right now, I cannot point out to a specific clear and concrete step that has been done. And even for the commitments that the leaders make a good example with like the Glasgow package, we have right now been trying to fight for not just climate finance because the climate finance facilities that are there, they're all in pledges. Funds uh, pledged in 2009 still not delivered today. And now we're asking for a separate loss and damage facility that supports the people who are facing the losses right now because the need is there. And we don't have to keep proving the need. Everybody sees it. We talk about it every day. We have to keep talking about it because I think it's important that people and the leaders that are making these decisions keep hearing these stories, keep listening to what's happening in the communities. Because many times they say that they don't see the need, but we see the need every day. Mm. We see these people, we, you know, we live among them. We are affected, we see it. But somehow we are still expected to keep proving the need and everybody knows that people are impacted by the crisis and all this burden is coming to us because yeah. we need to prove that there's loss and damage which I think yeah that's what worries me right. and yeah. you said earlier about leaders being peaceful and that really struck me um because I think that's that's true and almost this kind of wave of you know crisis reporting from young people from the ground and yeah, I think, it, you know, when you then see world leaders shaking hands with youth climate activists and like, oh, we're so, you know, excited about the future, you just kind of want to scream because you think there's that happened to you, of... Elizabeth, yes, and Katie's guess... describing of people shaking your hand and be like, oh, we are here with Elizabeth and she's so cool. It gets and... me angry. I mean, I will always explain. I was once in a webinar with all this. I mean, before we go to the platforms in a webinar and I talked about the situation, the really sad situation of what is happening in my country in the Horn of Africa. And it just struck me how much people are not listening to us because the moderator in the session I was done and it was really heartfelt message. And she just gets back and says, thanks for being such a breath of fresh air. And I couldn't imagine how my message and, and I, I just asked myself, who else was not listening in the session? Because the truth, she was not within my message. We, we, we were not connected with what I was saying. And I think it's the same with the summit. Sometimes they will put a young person on the podium just to tick a box that there was a young person, but they're not actually listening up to young people. They actually don't care about young people. It's just putting us there maybe because we are outraged and we want to tick a box that there was a young person, but that's not the point we're trying to put forward. We want you know, we want people to understand the agents. We want to be at par with everyone that this is urgent. And that's all, like we need immediate steps. 
And as much also, as we have all this long term, yeah. we need immediate steps to be taken. And that's the missing piece. Everyone's talking about 2030, 2050, net zero. Yes, but what's happening right now? I think engaging young people is about what makes us feel genuinely engaged. It's not about how people define youth engagement, because many times people define, have like their own definitions of what it is to ensure that there's new youth participation. But if still that does not make us feel genuinely uh, involved, then it's listen not. Listen to, it's genuinely moment. listen to. Yes, exactly. It's not it. Because many times there's a, there's, I think there's a narrative out there about what's meaningful participation of young people, what's meaningful you know, uh, involvement of young people. But it's really, we are the ones who should define. It's about how you feel when we communicate. It's about how you live feeling from a forum that you know I felt listened to. But again, if I don't feel listened to, I was actually not listened to because I could tell I know how you know the communications are going on. I I can it's really easy to tell that that was a tick box. And many mm -hmm. times I engage with young people after the sessions, they will tell you, oh, that was meaningful. Uh, I think that was a great initiative. And some will tell you, yeah, that was just to tick the box yeah. because you also see the engagement. And I think that's really painful to see that we are not taking the issue seriously because the reason we're telling these stories is about we see the urgency we know this is serious this is an emergency that we need to handle right now and the fact that we are not even being listened to is painful in itself i kind of keep wondering whether it is it's so big and to unravel it to really listen we've got to confront a sense of shame of guilt of historical kind of responsibility of you know for us people who come from the country that started the industrial revolution, all of the kind of historic debt that we owe really to the rest of the world. So I think to really listen, it means confronting all of those massive things yes. for world leaders, but also for, for me as a parent, you know, thinking, wow, well, it, to really, really engage with this, it means totally changing our whole lifestyles. And it feels like probably for parents, world leaders, parents trying to deal with all of this, whether that just, it just unravels too much? I would say two things. And one of them is the fact that there's a very big disconnect with the reality and what you know, the leaders are saying in the inside. And anytime I walk into these rooms, I can feel the disconnect. I was in a session yesterday and it struck me that nobody talked about people for a whole one hour session. Everyone's talking about all this information, but we don't realize that the center is people. This is about people. And the fact that there's all this, this like we, there's so much disconnect with the realities on the ground of how this crisis is impacting people and the messages that are going out in this room. And I think the other second thing is self-interest because if we do not come to these forums, you know, as leaders ready to address the challenge that is facing the globe that is facing different countries but in a different scale then it's difficult because then everyone will be trying to push their own interests their own interests of their own countries the interests of their own people of their own personal interests and for me that's the big problem that we need to solve so how how do you and it's not up to young people to solve this obviously i'm yeah. just asking you your, your you know opinion having seen the dynamics how do we overcome that? I was just going to say that young people are already working on changing that. But also, the leaders seem to be so much afraid of the truth. For instance, what I'm saying, the fact that this is about self-interest. Like, 
we're not on the same page. We're clearly on different pages. We are in the same storm. We are talking about the crisis every time we acknowledge that there is, it exists. We acknowledge the agency and all these things, but still we're not taking the steps needed to fill the gaps that exist. And this is because I strongly feel that the leaders are so much afraid of the truth. And that's why many times when young people try to call them out, they are shut down. They are not being included in the spaces enough. Uh, you say something wrong that does not impress someone and the next time you're not in the space because they're mm. so much afraid of the truth. But that's the truth. Like we need to- Really? They're yeah. excluded from the space? Yes. Wow. Yes. It's the same way that you say something that didn't interest anyone and the next time you're not getting an invite to speak in the same space. I've seen it happen before with people and I've had people share experiences because it tells us that there's, you know, the leaders are afraid of the truth. Oh, God. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, actually, to be honest. We haven't, like, interviewed and worked with politicians and, I, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And, and Katie, you said, like, maybe they get overwhelmed with the big kind of scale of the problem but to me I think it's arrogance I think they yeah. don't they're just like you said peaceful can also mean like lazy can also mean like yeah. they just don't get it and they don't care it's not going to affect them greatly um, when they sit in these incredibly privileged power positions and I think that that is the thing but I, I want to switch it around if I can on, on you a bit more because it's people like you that are bringing about change and calling for change and demanding change. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about what's not happening. I'm wondering if you have, how much hope you have, or do you have hope? And what motivates you to kind of keep this momentum up for, you know, demanding action? There's a quote that I always, uh, it always comes in my mind every time we're talking about action and uh, leaders being at peace and us taking action. And it's actually a quote by my greatest inspiration, that's the late Professor Sangare Matai, who has really inspired a lot of my work because she was an African woman leader in a space that African women are not allowed to take up leadership to even speak, but she stood against all odds. She save the spaces, the green spaces that I now enjoy back in Nairobi, Uhuru Park, Karura Forest. And she did all this of the extent of her life, her health, she was jailed, she was beaten. But still, she said that she was doing what she did because she felt it was the right thing to do. And there's one thing that Wangari Matai always said that in line with that, that those of us who understand and who feel strongly must not tire because the burden is on us who know and those who don't know are at peace. So it is us who know that get disturbed and are caused to take action, which is a sad reality of the world. Oh, today. wow, that's so powerful. And I think that's like the sad reality of the world today. We're carrying the burden because we know, we see, we know how bad it's going to get if nothing is done. But still, those that, and this, the challenge is that those that have the capacity, the resources, don't see it. But so what makes, what makes you want to carry on then? So what, what makes me want to carry on is because I strongly believe in people power. And like I said, I believe in our ability to care deeply and to act collectively. And every time I'm in this space, I know that I'm not fighting alone. I know there are many other young people in this space. There are many other, like I mentioned, uh, other people even that are in the other generations that care about this. 
I know we have people also in these like uh, forums, you know, sometimes even leaders who who try who are like allies to the young people. They're trying to make a certain difference, but they also have challenges within themselves. But how the fact that I'm not alone in this space, there's so many other people that are fighting. And one of my biggest highlights, even when I come to this summit, is being in the outside, not in the inside. And being in the outside, you feel that these people want to make a difference. They want to see change. They want to see an end to the rising inequalities. They want to see the climate change impacts addressed. But again, you see a family of people who understand what international cooperation and solidarity is, which is the missing piece as well in the inside. How do we ensure that we understand the scale of the problem and how it's uh, it's uh, disproportionately impacting other people and choose to put frontline communities on the front line, on the front pages, let them tell their stories, let them be the center of the decision that they're making. Young people are doing that. I was in Glasgow at COP26 and many times uh, people might say that the six minute session was what was a highlight to me, but actually really it was being in the outside with a group of young people that were protesting and they put indigenous communities and all young people from the global south at the front of the march to have their voices heard, to make sure that people understand. But when you go back inside, it's different. There are no indigenous people representation. The global south is not represented. The young voices are not represented. They're all watching from the sidelines. So it's about bridging that gap. And I think for me, seeing, I strongly believe in people power. I strongly believe that these people that uh, feel this urgency will make the turnaround, they'll make these things happen. Because again, we will not sit back and watch as the planet get down to the drain because the people in power are sitting back and watching. So we will, I, yeah. I love that idea of um, you're just not gonna take the status quo. You're just not going to take it and you're going to, you know, try your best with every breath that you have to change it. Um, I want to get a sense, and I think it's really nice for everybody listening to this podcast to get a sense of the environment in which you grew up in. And you talk a lot, and I, I know this from the research notes that we did on you about the beautiful space that you live in. Um, I'm looking at a kind of concrete pavement with a bit of grass on it, a few trees, um, but probably not very similar to what you <laughs> know in the incredible place that you grew up. But I just want to get a sense of how that has maybe impacted you and if you can describe to us um, the air that you breathe and what it's like. Yes, it has greatly impacted the way in which I view nature. I will say that I got connected to nature at a young age and that's what made me love nature as well. And by the way, I planted my first tree when I was the age of seven. It was the same time when Professor Angare Matai was the member of parliament in my home region. She was mobilizing women to set up tree nurseries and to grow trees because she knew that when they grow trees, they will get food, they will get water, they will get firewood and they will be able to sustain their families. It was all, how do we bring the connection with nature, societies, and our well-being and our health every time. And for me, the best moments and my favorite spots were just sitting by the side of the river, just watching the waters flowing and seeing the trees swing by the wind. I think these for me were really powerful moments that also taught me how connected we are to nature. It's about the air we are breathing. It's about 
the food we are eating. It's about how we feel at peace. It's about also our health and well-being. And for me, that's the reason actually why I founded the Green Generation Initiative because one of the main things I wanted to do was to get children to love nature because I understood that our behaviors and attitudes begin to change while you're still young. It's probably the reason we're getting it difficult to get people to make a difference if they have been so much disconnected from the natural world, for instance. But for someone who has grown up in a space where they have seen what value nature brings, it's not just a tree, that's oxygen, that's food, that's health, that's everything that is in it. And being able to see all these angles and aspects and then feeling the pain of nature as well, that's how I get to call it, like develop to a point where I can actually feel the pain of nature when people cut down trees or get angry because we're supposed to protect them. They're supposed to be precious. Uh, it's precious, we need to protect it and we cannot afford to just destroy nature. For me, having that connection to nature, when you love nature, you will protect nature, you will fight for nature. And I think for me, that's one of the pieces that made me begin to educate young people to even bring them to nature because it's not everyone that has the privilege to grow up in a place that's beautiful, that maybe has trees, that has waters, but how do we bring even the kids in the cities to experience nature, to connect to nature, to be in the outdoors and just feel the difference that, you know, that they're able to feel and then let them understand that that's why we are in this fight. That's why we want this to be there for generations to come. And if it's not there, then, you know, these are the same children that are struggling to like get clean air in the city. Pollution is killing so many children right now. And uh, the cities right now are, you know, we're still fighting to have green, clean and resilient cities, but it's really truly the children that are suffering the most. And I work with children who many times we work on this campaign called the Adopt a Tree campaign, where I get every child in every, in every school in my country to plant and adopt a fruit tree each in the school compound. So they're able to make that tree grow to maturity. And the moment the tree will give, you know, give fruits, but also they will see the tree grow. But these same children out of their school gates, you know, they see big businesses and corporations bringing down big forests. You know, they still see countries beyond their borders burning fossil fuels. So, and that's why the fight goes beyond my borders because it's about how we complement each other's efforts. It's about how we stop undermining the efforts of people who are trying to make a difference on the ground at their communities. How do we complement efforts and not undermine them? Because it would be very heartbreaking for a child to not understand why am I planting trees here, but I'm seeing forests being cut down, you know, faster than I can even snap my fingers. It's a huge disconnect that, and that's why I have chosen to combine my work on the ground with the children at Green Generation Initiative and communities that I visit and uh, tell stories about and also talk to every time with now bringing that to the global stage because we cannot afford to undermine these little efforts that they're making on the ground. So it's about how we bring that to the global platform and make sure that their voices are being heard as well. Well, it's incredibly inspiring, isn't it, Katie? Well, and also just thinking that kind of, um, you know, local efforts not undermining you know other efforts kind of globally God, kids understand so much better than adults you know where our generation are so kind of likely to undermine efforts in another country because of money or you know wealth or greed or whatever mercifully mercifully thank god that you know you've got the younger generation coming up who who aren't so preoccupied with self and kind of wealth and gain mm. um I, I mean i think yeah 
Gosh, so much to think about, Elizabeth. Thank you. We knew that would happen, didn't we, Katie? We knew that you would like go ding, 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 ding. These are things to think about. Um, I'm thinking like, yeah, we're running out of time, but um, before we let you go, just wondering, as we sit here as parents, worried about our kids and how we can support them, what would your big piece of advice be? Oh my gosh, I sound like a politician. You've got six minutes to tell the world. What are you going to do? <laughs> But yeah, if you, if you can maybe share with us some of your wisdom about what we can maybe do to help the younger generation right now, we'd be so grateful. Apart from listening, which you've communicated very well that your frustration that, you know, adults and decision makers aren't listening. But yeah, apart from that, we there are listening so many now. Things. Yes, there are so many things. And one of them is parents can actually help us get governments to take the clear and concrete steps that they already know they must take to stop the climate crisis because we have so many countries right now that still are falling short of you know what they're supposed to do in fact almost all the countries but we can actually make the change happen in our individual countries get our governments to do what they must do and that means that when the parents join us our voices will get louder and uh, it means that we will be able to put more pressure. Secondly, the youth movement always needs a support system. Many times we get to these forums and we get back home and we are overwhelmed and many people are, you know, they have burnouts because it's been like two long weeks of trying to make change happen, but still come back with frustrations because the outcomes are not pleasing. And I think this is the time that we get that support system even from the parents how do we support the young people our children to keep that momentum because this is a group that will make that change happen and if we don't keep the momentum there's burnout there's uh echo anxiety happening right now i think 70 percent of young people are afraid of how the future will be because of climate change let's acknowledge it and accept that yes it's happening and also like let's help the young people and the children be able to deal with the anxiety in a way that it's used as a fuel to power them to make a difference. And uh, it's actually a reality, it's happening to so many young people, but we cannot silence that. We cannot like close our eyes and say it's not happening, it's happening. So we need to acknowledge it and let them know it's okay to feel that way. But then how do we move forward and support them to use that as a fuel to make a difference? And the other thing is just to also encourage the young people and the children that what they're doing, it's their little thing. As long as it's their little thing, it's okay. It's enough. The scale of the problem is just huge, but we don't have the capacity, we don't have the resources. So it's okay to do as much as we can. And we cannot be able to do everything, but we can do to the capacity that we can. And remember that, you know, all those multiple acts multiplied by millions of us are going to make that difference happen. And the other thing is also about how do we incorporate climate education into our institutions. I think parents should advocate for that in uh, every school that their children are in. Let's make this happen in every school. Let's uh, also make it mandatory for climate education because then this is about generations. This is about shaping this kind of generation that understands the scale of the problem. And uh, the other thing also, I think parents can also support initiatives that are already happening on the ground to make sure that we support communities on the front line or for instance, uh, people in the in maybe the global south that are trying to work on some of these solutions, we can directly support them or find ways in which we can 
uh, replicate similar programs in our countries, but it's possible, it's doable. Uh, but most importantly, it's because or it's because of people power that we are going to make this change happen. And yeah. for us to change everything, we'll need everyone, the parents, the leaders, the children. So we have to make sure that everybody picks a role and does something. Because for as long as you're doing something, I think that in itself, um, I mean, that in itself is, uh, is what we need, but we cannot uh, just sit back and watch on the sidelines. We all have to do something. We all have to take responsibility and uh, allow ourselves to be held accountable, but also do something, do what we must do and do much more and ask ourselves, what am I doing right now? And can I do more? Can I do much more? And then do it. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I wish you didn't have to, Elizabeth. I really wish that you didn't have to, but I'm but so I'm glad, of, you I'm glad you are. <laughs> yeah, glad you are. So I've taken from that, listen, act and support. Listen, yeah. act, support, listen, act, support, be doers. Um, keep shining that star. Thank you. What powerful words from Elizabeth on the unstoppable momentum of young people and how us parents can support them. In next week's episode, we talk to Mayor Yvonne Aki Sawyer from Freetown in Sierra Leone. We ask Yvonne how she integrates climate activism into her work as a politician and juggles that alongside family life. See you then. Mum, will the planet die before I do? Is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.